Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Last time I talked about the very early 20th century legislations that set the stage for digital piracy and the technologies that grew out of it. This time, we're going to get into what remains the biggest turning point in online file sharing and why we're still feeling its effects to this day. Hi, my name is Danny Roth, and this is the untold story of the history of digital piracy, part two. So, the thing to remember as we prepare to talk about the watershed moment that changed the course of digital history is how thoroughly unaware and out of touch most people were with where technology was moving towards the end of the 20th century. The RIAA, for example, was fixated on hardware in the 1980s with mixed results. So, for example, if you were an aware human creature in the late 80s and early 90s, you probably remember compact discs. And what you might remember from last week was how, at least prior to the advent of the compact disc player, most companies We're not worried about music being copied off the radio or being copied from tape to tape. Other than because, like how we talked about last week, where it just wasn't happening as much and people were still mostly absorbing associated ads, the other big reason why the concern was limited related to the impermanence of the copies. Magnetic tape, bless it, is not a format meant to last. And let's face it, up until the late 80s, the process of analog copying music or video would be a lengthy one. Not worth it for most consumers, not worth it for most companies to worry about. But compact discs are a fundamentally different medium for a couple of reasons. For one, they were, at least at first, more expensive to produce. Not so much because of the cost of the materials, which was actually cheaper than vinyl, but because of the new processes of transferring data to CD and the cost of that new technology. That, according to the record industry, at least. But for a consumer at the time, the price difference was pretty profound. Imagine going from paying around 10 bucks for a tape on average to about 16 for the same music on CD. It's a pretty noticeable inflation. And the average consumer isn't going to be interested in the hypotheticals on why the price increase is so steep from the mouths of the people making that money. So this is a real consumer versus record industry conflict of interest. And it's one that's playing out at the same time that the music industry is in conflict between artists and suits. Look up Billy Joel and Piano Man sometime, you'll see how bad things can get. So, there's a war being waged on multiple fronts, basically, when something huge starts to happen that the recording industry cannot ignore. The invention of DAT players, and more importantly, the readable and rewritable CD-ROM. And this is where the Audio Home Recording Act comes into play. So basically between the late 80s and early 90s, there were talks designed to limit customers' ability to make perfect, long-lasting digital copies of songs from home. And part of that also meant limiting tech companies from being able to sell products like DAT players, digital compact cassette, and mini discs. The problem was that in addition to fighting the tech industry, the music industry was, like we mentioned, bickering amongst itself. 
in this case over how the artists themselves would be protected in addition to the record companies. Basically, it took a few years, but there was some legislation passed. And while it certainly accomplished something in the moment, it was not exactly legislation for the long term because technology was moving too quick to cover the rapid evolution of technology. Basically, what's relevant here is this. You know how you couldn't play a rewritable CD on a Discman? That's because of the Audio Home Recording Act. You could own a rewritable drive on your computer, but you couldn't have one in your boombox. That was the law. And as for DAT and similar players, there was a serial copy management system that made it so you couldn't make a copy of a copy of something. So you could transfer a CD you owned to DAT, but you couldn't record that new copy someplace else. It was kind of a Pyrrhic victory, honestly. Yes, DAT players got relegated to being mostly for professional recording use, but that also meant people didn't feel obligated to buy the White Album again on minitape. Which brings us to MP3s and the advent of the MP3 player. So you remember how I said at the top that the recording industry was out of touch? Well, that's not exactly true. They just weren't smart enough to circumnavigate the growing popularity of MP3. They tried. But the law set up through the Audio Home Recording Act was still mostly built around recording something off of the radio or of making a copy of a copy of a CD or digital tape. And there was also a pretty specific stipulation allowing for the copying of media through computers, which left hard drives in a nebulous other region, meaning that if you had a music file on your hard drive, you could transfer that file as many times as you wanted. And the thing about MP3, in case you didn't know, is that it's a lossy format, which is a way of saying that the file is compressed down to a smaller size so it can be shared more easily. And it employed something called auditory masking, which is a fancy way of saying that even though the audio was compressed, the human ear wouldn't be able to easily identify the difference. And there were a few reasons for that, one being so that you could fit as many files as possible onto a portable MP3 player, which brings us to the court case RIAA v. Diamond Multimedia Systems Incorporated, wherein the music industry tried to say that Diamond Multimedia was responsible for distributing the Rio PMP300, the first popular MP3 player on the market, was breaking copyright. But again, this was a direct file transfer from a computer to another device with what is essentially a hard drive on it. And that was not against the law, which was held up in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in 1999. Hi friends, 1999 is the year of Napster. And it was also the year that the record industry went from creating law ahead of time to actively combating a law that was no longer on their side. And when I say that the release of Napster is the watershed moment that changed the course of history, I really do mean it. It might still be the most important technological moment of the last 20 years. Okay, so, Napster. It was a peer-to-peer file-sharing program created by Sean Fanning and Sean Parker. It was at least initially designed to help with the sharing of bootleg live musical performances. It also was thought of as being helpful in the sharing of older music that maybe wasn't so easy to track down since it wasn't in regular circulation. Ultimately, though, the very nature of a peer-to-peer network meant that any MP3 could be uploaded. And so basically every song started finding its way to Napster. And yes, there were other peer-to-peer programs out in the world, but none were quite as simple to use and had as immediately understandable an interface as Napster. So Napster came out in 1999. 
By early 2000, it had 20 million users. And when Napster lost its lawsuit against the RIAA in 2001, it had 80 million users. And let's talk about that tiny two-year span, shall we? Because it's pretty complicated. The short version is that Napster obliterated the way the music industry worked. The long version involves how that was able to happen and whether or not that's a good thing. Again, I'm not a lawyer, but here's the gist. As you know, prior to digital music piracy, you mostly had to buy whole albums, pay too much for singles, or wait to hear songs on the radio. And that's just for the songs that were in heavy rotation. You have to really consider what a vice-like grip the record industry had over both consumers and artists. The easiest and sometimes only way for a music fan to discover new music was through radio and other channels largely controlled by the record company. After all, if an artist doesn't have a lot of money, they can't really play live shows indefinitely pre-1999 without some help from the record industry. And likewise, there was some control over venues, too. The record industry, in a lot of ways, was less a group of music-loving tastemakers and more a group of money-making gatekeepers. If you happen to have passed through those gates, you would have a shot at also making a lot of money. If not, you're kind of out of luck. If you were succeeding within the confines of that industry model, Napster was very bad for you. Metallica and Dr. Dre, for example, were vocal opponents to Napster because so far... They had made a lot of money through the traditional record industry, and that money was starting to go away. On the flip side, though, you had people like Chuck D, who were advocates for Napster because they saw in the sharing of free music an opportunity for artists to get their names out there in a way they hadn't before. No need for a middleman, just put your record out there, and then do whatever you could to get people to your shows and buy your merch. That idea sounds familiar, it's because that's the way a lot of digital content creators in general operate 20 years later. But first, the thing to note is the raw power of Napster. Because not only were old songs, new songs, and live shows getting shared for free, but so were songs that weren't even released yet. That's how Metallica found out about Napster. Music from their new record got played on the radio because people working at stations were downloading the songs before the release, cutting out the entire music industry entirely. That is crazy. Forget the idea of a single college kid downloading some songs Radio stations themselves, a part of the music industry, were sharing songs they got from Napster, which was, in a way, kind of self-destructive. And that's where we were living from 1999 onward, in a world where Napster or no Napster music would continue being made available. It was the Streisand effect. The more you don't want something out there, the more it's going to be out there. Except instead of gossip, it's intellectual property. And more importantly, now the RIAA and anyone else trying to change copyright law is having to be reactive rather than proactive. And technology is moving fast, literally. The thing to remember is that when Napster started in 1999, most people who didn't have a high-speed T1 connection, so anyone who wasn't in college basically, was using a dial-up modem to download songs. By 2001, cable modems were fast becoming the standard, making it so MP3 could be downloaded almost instantaneously rather than taking hours at a time. Now you might think, or even remember, that a lawsuit was won, and that even some individual downloaders were sued per song, but there's a complexity there, you see, which is this. If you, let's say, download songs from Napster, and then get a letter saying you're being sued, who is suing you, and how 
they know you were downloading music? And the answer is they can't know unless your internet service provider is monitoring you. And even then, mostly what they should be seeing is the amount of downloading, not the specificity of what you're downloading, which means for those paying attention that the only way to really know is by also being on a peer-to-peer network and a peer, in this case, who is using that network to hack into a computer and find out that specific information. So to prevent people from potentially breaking the law, at some point, the record industry kind of had to break the law. And that makes litigating the whole thing very difficult, especially since servers keeping programs like Napster alive often were not in the United States of America at all. All of that, all of it is such a mess that even when Napster is shut down in 2001, even when the iTunes store comes into existence two years later in 2003, thus making it so people can't affordably buy just the single songs they want rather than a whole album, the technology has already shifted again. Napster is gone, but it's replaced with Audio Galaxy and Kazaa and eventually LimeWire. And remember how we mentioned the transition from dial-up to cable modems? Well, by 2003, cable modems were pretty normal, which meant larger files could be shared, and that meant people weren't just sharing music anymore. Now it was TV shows and movies, video games, and expensive software all suddenly available for free. And it raises all the same questions. Don't cable companies cost too much? Isn't the cost of DVDs and movie tickets outrageous these days? And by 2005, when YouTube is invented, it's also... Gosh, I just want to be able to make videos for people to watch. Do I really have to pay hundreds of dollars for video editing software? That doesn't seem fair. From the very first streaming event, which was a Victoria's Secret show, by the way, in 1999, the 20 years of evolution in online streaming could not have happened without the evolution from Napster to BitTorrent, which is a peer-to-peer network designed specifically for larger files being shared. Piracy forced iTunes to be released within two years of Napster existing, which created the opportunity for the iPod to be as successful as it became from 2001 onward. And to that end, the same can be said of the evolution of smartphones in general. As for music, TV, and film industries, their inability, through the very laws they helped to create, forced them to change the way they do business. Both Hulu and Netflix began streaming starting in 2007, as it was becoming clear that appointment television was quickly becoming an artifact of a bygone era. And if you think about it, very smartly, corporations realized that the trick to at least beginning to dismantle piracy was to offer as much as possible for as little as possible, at least at first. And the thing about streaming on Netflix or Spotify is that it explicitly involves not owning the music or the TV show or the movie. If you're not online, you can't watch. Really, even a downloaded song or film requires a connection to confirm the paid subscription, which means, increasingly, people own less and less media and are instead subscribed to a service. Apple Music, for example, deletes files based on an imperfect algorithm that can, for example, remove live or alternate versions of songs from your computer. And the future of video game consoles likewise seems to be focused less on disc-based, high-performance systems and more web-based streaming ones. But on the side of the individual, the seismic effects of Napster and BitTorrent are also obvious to see. Plenty of musicians have found a new ability 
to share their music without the record industry. And thanks to social media, they also have a much better path towards sharing everything they do, including live shows and merchandise. And frankly, this is part of where things like coffee and Patreon come from. Same for Kickstarter, GoFundMe, Indiegogo, and other crowdsourcing platforms. They all exist in part because of how digital piracy at the start of the 21st century upset the Apple cart. Not just streaming music and video, but the entire mechanism of social media. And now you know the untold story of the history of digital piracy. Imagine what you might know next. Thanks for listening. More episodes of Untold Story with me, Danny Roth, drop each week. Until then, for more of everything from the worlds of sci-fi, fantasy, and horror, visit sci-fi.com. <laughs>